Hey, welcome to Plant Yourself. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Two quick announcements before we get to today's show. If you're interested in becoming a health coach, I'm offering another run due to popular demand for people who can't make 8 p.m. on Wednesday nights, Eastern Time. So we're doing another run of the program, which will meet the practicums will meet at 10 a.m. on Wednesdays, Eastern Time U.S., which means if you're in Europe or Africa, uh, that might be good for you. Also, if you're in the US and evenings aren't good and you have free time in the mornings, either 7 a.m. Uh, Pacific time or 10 to 1130 Eastern, then you can participate. If you want to find out more about becoming a wicked effective health coach, you can go to wellstartcoach.com. Second thing is, if you're not aware of it, Josh Lajani and I have a book that is free on Amazon Kindle. It's called Sick to Fit. And if you just go to Amazon and search for Sick to Fit, you'll be able to download it for free and read it on any Kindle enabled device, even a phone, smartphone, tablet, computer whatever. All right, let's get to today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. Well, start health and sick to fit. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a brave and beloved life. So today's guest is Carolyn Raffensperger. She's an environmental lawyer. Um, her career dates back to 1982 when she began advocating for the environment as an activist, as a lawyer, as the um, co-founder and head of the Science and Environmental Health Network. And she is one of the people most associated with what's called the precautionary principle when it comes to balancing economic and environmental impacts. And the precautionary principle sounds like a fancy word, but you may know it's more common names better safe than sorry, look before you leap. And if you're uh, familiar with the doctor's Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. And the idea is that in our culture, in our society, economics gets the benefit of the doubt. If something's going to make money, we assume it's go, unless there's overwhelming evidence that it's not a good thing. And Raffensperger argues we should reverse that, that when there's serious reason to believe there might be harm done, we should not proceed unless we have very, very clear evidence of absence of harm. So in our conversation, we're going to be talking about this, this nexus between legal and ethical. And what she wishes for us is that we think of ourselves as guardians of the future and that our descendants look back on our generation and think of us as beloved ancestors. And you can imagine what they're going to think of us now if they if they get there, if we leave a world that they can survive on, going to be thinking about how did we destroy the planet? How did we create the climate change that makes life so much more difficult and unstable? And I don't want to be part of that generation that the future looks back on and says, how could you let that happen? So we're going to get to the interview in just a couple seconds. Just a couple of quick things. One is if you'd like some health coaching, check out plantyourself.com slash laser, L-A-S-E-R. And that's my signature one year program for health coaching to get you on track where you want to be. If you want to lose weight, reverse chronic disease, get fit, all them things. Uh, check it out. Plantyourself.com slash laser. And finally, a quick reminder that this podcast, if you like it, is free for everyone. 
and supported by those who can afford it. And if you would like to be one of the latter group, you can do so at patreon.com. Just search for Plant Yourself. I would love it if you would join shoulder to shoulder with me and many, many others to help sustain and support the growth of this podcast. All right, that's it. Let's get to today's conversation. Without further ado, Carolyn Raffensperger, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you. So we're um, we're going to be talking about your your career in in environmental law and and ethics and and policy. And before we started, you asked me if I would introduce my audience to you, so you you would have a sense of uh, what would be useful for them. So basically, the podcast is it's called Plant Yourself, and it started out simply as a podcast for people who wanted to eat plants like uh, vegans, vegetarians, people who wanted to be healthy. And over the years, as my interests have broadened, it's morphed into a look at how can we be healthy as individuals, as communities, as a species and as part of a planetary family. So not every not all the guests are are vegan or plant based. Um, I think most environmentalists think that we should have plants on the on the world and in, in our bodies. Um, but that's just, that's essentially like, you know, we're we're interested in living healthy lives, authentic human lives as part of a, a, a sustainable ecosystem. So does that does, does that kind of give you a sense? It does. And uh, so I hope uh, for uh, listeners, and I'm speaking directly to you, that um, you feel like this is a conversation um, where uh, what I have to say that there's, there's this kind of back and forth, and Howard is your voice in this. So I look forward to it. Good. I will, uh, I will channel them as, as um, graciously and humbly as I can. So the the first thing I want to say is I want I want everyone to pause the recording and go to YouTube and watch your TEDx talk, um, which will be I think will be very useful for the conversation. But maybe um, we, we can start. Just tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey. You know, you you, uh, you were doing archaeology and then you somehow you know, picked up a law degree. So what's what was your um, your story and your interest and and the trajectory that brought you to where you are now? You know, there's so many ways to tell a story like that. Um, and uh, I, I could tell it as uh, how failure, uh, you know, moved me step by step on the path. Or I could <laughs> say, you know, tell it uh, uh, as a history of friendships and relationships. Um, and uh, chronologically is probably the least interesting way. But uh, I will begin with my dad, uh, who was surgeon-in-chief of Children's Memorial Hospital in Chicago. And one day in the, in, when I was uh, young, he came home and told me that a certain class of childhood cancers and birth defects were humanly caused, that pollution had... Um, had caused the kinds of, of diseases and problems that he was the world's expert on. So my dad created the field of pediatric surgery. He wrote the pediatric surgical boards. He has written the textbooks on it. He was the first person to hold a chair uh, at a hospital in, in pediatric surgery. And when he said that he could identify where 
a child had come from with certain birth defects or childhood cancers. He could point to a map. And I said, well, why don't you do something about it, Dad? Thinking he's the most powerful person. He, hmm. could, he, could, you know, create, he could create healthy children who had um, such disastrous problems. And he said he couldn't prove it. And that became almost the Zen cone, the huh. meditation on, um, on suffering and on justice. So the thing about children who have diseases or uh, some kind of problem like a birth defect, um, that's a measure of suffering. And it is, um, if, if it's preventable, it seems that we have a moral obligation to do so. And if it depended on proof rather than taking some kind of action where we could, um, if we could prevent it, then, then it seemed like the, this was a no-brainer to me. And I, I thought a long time about that. And the evidence now is quite remarkable on a number of cancers or, or defects or other things that actually have an environmental component. So Rene Dubose said that every civilization creates the conditions for disease, for the, 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 the unique fingerprint of disease. Mm. I also think that we create the... A, the same, the, you know, each civilization or culture creates the kinds of injustices, um, just as we create the same kinds of, uh, you know, the fingerprint for disease. And so, um, you know, as I look at what the, the diseases are that manifest themselves as a result of the kind of uh, economic system, legal system, healthcare system, agricultural system, energy system that we've put into place, um, they are increasingly chronic, increasingly subtle, and nuanced, and hard to diagnose. Uh, so, the, you know, there's some that you can go in and, and see pretty clearly. You, know, you have diabetes, do you have uh, heart, heart diseases, do you have uh, heart disease, do you have, um, you know, a couple of others that you, you, can, you can identify pretty quickly. But some of the uh, uh, problems that are related to the endocrine system, um, you know, thyroid, uh, parathyroid, Addison's disease, all these diseases that um, affect these chemical messengers in our body, much more difficult to diagnose. And so I'm looking at that sweep of um, diseases that could be preventable. And um, you, as we look at where we are as a culture now, there are, there's suffering that just go with the human condition. You know, my heart's going to be broken. Um, my lover is going to someday die or my, you know, there, there's death, there's, there's birth, but, you know, there's, there's all of those normal things that go with, with being a mammal, with being part of a community, with um, being parts of families. But then there are things that are not. And uh, those, the kinds of suffering that we inflict on each other seem to be, um, you know, where I focused my, my uh, life and my calling. Mm. And that, that, that issue of proof is, is very salient for my community as well, um, because we see the, the food industry is using the same tactics that the tobacco industry used. Um, and 
with with help from the medical and research community, which holds that the, the gold standard to prove something is a double blind, randomized controlled clinical trial. And of course, you know, your father couldn't randomize children ethically to get this cancer or that cancer or to live in this toxic area or that toxic area. And so by by almost the, the, the structural definitions that we've all agreed upon, nothing is really provable. Oh, um, yeah, so there, there's ways of, of uh, demonstrating causation in epidemiology, for instance. And uh, I've made a career out of studying those. And um, so we've, we've gotten better at uh, demonstrating causation over time. Um, and thankful to uh, really good scientists. But sometimes um, we have to act in the face of insufficient evidence. And then the question is, who gets the benefit of the doubt? So if um, uh, so tobacco is a good case study. Um, there are seven different criteria for uh, proving causation in, in epidemiology. And... Uh, you know, the, the, the cause has to happen before the effect, it, some things like that. And uh, out of all of those, those seven criteria, um, by um, about, uh, well, in, I, I don't remember the date, but I think by about 1954, 19, 1960s, um, we had most of those criteria nailed down for tobacco for causing lung cancer but we didn't know the biological mechanism by which it caused cancer. Mm. And that was why until the mid-1990s, tobacco executives could, um, could uh, stand up with their hands over their hearts saying, tobacco, we don't have proof that tobacco doesn't cause cancer, even though we had six out of seven of the criteria for demonstrating causation around tobacco and lung cancer. And so... You know, the question is, how do we know enough to act? And under this idea of the precautionary principle, which says, in the face of scientific uncertainty and the likelihood of harm, do we, can we take preventive action? And so there are things like pesticides, um, you know, which is, um, pesticides are widely used in food. Um, uh, if you have a, a pesticide that is a known neurotoxicant, and we know that it causes uh, uh, developmental disabilities in rodents. We know that this uh, crosses the blood-brain, uh, crosses uh, the placenta into uh, the womb and into a, a baby in utero. Um, how much do we need to know beyond that before we say we're not going to allow that pesticide? Um, either to be used in food or to be, what, what are we going to do? What kind of action can we take to prevent that baby, even if we aren't certain that it could cause a developmental disability? Or the other end of life, that uh, we know that the elderly are uh, also more fragile, that uh, more things cross the blood-brain barrier in, in elders, um, and so things are uh, neurodegenerative. And um, if we have increased some of the diseases of old age because of those chemicals that we've been using, don't we have an obligation um, to preserve the health and well-being of both our, 
youngest and our elders um, in our culture. Right. And we can do that, um, so, even in the face of scientific uncertainty. Right. So here, here's what I, what I love about your work. So I, I went to graduate school in the 90s for I got a master's in public health and a doctorate of health studies. And a lot of what we did was policy based. And I learned about sort of, you know, acceptable risk and cost benefit analysis. Like that's how you make decisions. And it, it was so logical and scientific. And it seemed like we were operating on first principles because we had, you know, calculators. And I'm embarrassed now having come across your work to realize like, like no parent would ever apply that kind of calculus to like, well, you know, what is the risk of my child getting run over on the, you know, on my driveway? Like, like, no, you do things, even though the, the chances of harm might be low or unknown. And like, I'm, I'm amazed at how brainwashed we all were by the, the scientific elegance of just the assumption that this is totally neutral and we could figure it all out. We could figure out how many, how much of this pollutant to let into the air. Um, you know, like every, everything, you know, how fast can cars go? Uh, what what is the miles per gallon that we need to like? Everything was either like, you know, it's going to hurt the economy or it's going to hurt people. And we have to figure out the right balance point in the middle. And like I, I'm, I'm getting nauseous thinking about how in love I was with with that model. So the uh, key there is that environmental law, which is large part of public health, is free market law. Free, it's based on free market principles. So we buy and sell permits to pollute, which are really buying and selling permits to cause you illnesses. And we decide how many uh, people can get cancer as an acceptable risk. The, there are other areas of law that we can move environmental law into, and that is rights law. So if you uh, assume that a, a baby has a right to be born without being pre-polluted, um, that, uh, that we have a right to a clean and healthy environment, what would that look like? So it's hard to, uh, it, it, to imagine having that right, um, but we can make an, an analogy to say a right to own a gun. Um, at this point, you have a greater right to own a gun than you do to, ha to breathe clean air or drink clean water. <laughs> and it seems to me that what we need to do is move um, environmental law out of free market private property law and into uh, rights law. So um, there are some wonderful advances around um, uh, rights law. Uh, the, the, probably the, the, the uh, grounding feature has been environmental justice. And the theory behind environmental justice law is that people have an equal right to be protected, especially uh, and a right to equal treatment under the law, and that some communities, especially uh, people of color, um, have been uh, treated unequally. And so it's not uh, legal to treat a poor black community with, you know, give them more toxics, more pollution, more, uh, you know, more chances for birth defects and, and cancers 
than it is for a rich white community. And so we have some models for rights law, um, and I've been working to expand that. So there are about five states that recognize a human right to a clean and healthy environment. Illinois is one, for instance. There are others. Um, And then there's a corresponding duty on the part of the state um, to manage uh, the 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 resources that the commons for the beneficiaries um, and to, to protect them to provide clean water to uh, provide that uh, right to a clean and uh, the conditions for uh, a clean and healthy environment and so uh, looking at the individual right to a clean and healthy environment and then to the rights of future generations to inherit um, the uh, a healthy earth and it seems to me that recognizing the rights of future generations uh, to a clean and healthy environment expands our, our sense of time over how we make these decisions. If we make a decision on behalf of future generations, say for you know, a clean river or uh, uh, building the prairies, uh, restoring the prairies in, in the Midwest, uh, whatever it might be, protecting the ocean, um, that that our generation will benefit from those decisions in terms of a cleaner and healthier world. Mm. Well, so, I mean, one, one thing that really struck me, I mean, so so many things struck me about your TEDx talk. One is that you, you're, you borrowed a definition um, that the, gov- the purpose of the government is to be the trustee of the commons, which, like, really blew my mind. Like, that's not how, at all how I think about government, <laughs> Um, so you're raising what I'm doing right now in my, in my work. Um, and I'm going to go back to 1971. And in 1971, a, a lawyer who later became a Supreme Court justice wrote a memo uh, for the Chamber of Commerce. Lewis Powell wrote a memo that uh, was a, a document around strategy, And what he said in his opening sentence was that no one uh, disputes the fact that the foundation of America is free enterprise. And then he went out to he went on to lay out a strategy for uh, taking back government from uh, Ralph Nader and those who would regulate business and put restrictions on this foundation of America, free enterprise. And out of that, you know, we got all of these conservative and right-wing think tanks. We got uh, the, the, the right-wing movement taking over law schools, and you see that now in the Supreme Court, uh, the, the, the move to define government as only uh, responsible for the economy. And that uh, anything that gets in the way of the economy and free market is actually anti-American. And that is culminating now in the Trump era. It seems to me that uh, both the left and the right have hated government. So the left, and, you know, in the 1970s was furious for uh, government getting us into Vietnam and uh, all the things that government has done um, that has probably sabotaged uh, the rights of the people. And the right hates it because it gets in the way of the market. <laughs> and so we have not had uh, any 
other uh, call for, in some ways, a righteous government, um, a government that um, is by and for the people, and to define what that would mean. So currently, we measure the success of government with the GDP. Hmm. Imagine if we had other criteria by which we would measure the success of government. Imagine if we used public health indicators as the success of government. What would that look like? Imagine if they reported on the commons all these things that we share, um, air, water, national parks, wildlife, uh, shorelines, um, the highways, the, whatever it is that you want to include as the, the commons, uh, the Internet, and reported on the well-being of, of uh, you know, the, the commons as part of the budget, that government has a fiduciary duty to care for these things that we share, and that the measure of success could be public health. Hmm. So well, then we then we'd be we'd be standing up and shouting, "We're number thirty-eight, right? We're number thirty-eight, right? Yeah, yeah." Um, rather than you know, the, and and that the goals of the government are to increase maternal health. Um, uh, it would be to uh, decrease the uh, the rates of Alzheimer's and and Parkinson's, or delay the onset of those, um, and. Uh, uh, the GDP is not a magic number. It's just so embedded in our thinking, like cost-benefit analysis and risk assessment, as you described earlier, because it's a number that – but there are other numbers that matter. There are other numbers that matter. And um, so what should government do? Barney Frank said, a former congressman, said that governments, uh, government is what we do together. Mm-hmm. What is it that we want to do together. So I live in uh, the state of Iowa, which is the most biologically altered state in the union. And uh, I was chair of the Sierra Club uh, up until uh, this Sunday, and I, I, uh, uh, the Iowa chapter of the Sierra Club. And as part of our effort uh, at the Sierra Club and with the Science and Environmental Health Network, the organization I work for, um, we did an analysis of the state budget under two theories of government. So one theory is that Iowa's major responsibility is the economy of Iowa. And the other uh, uh, theory of government is that it's got a fiduciary duty to the commonwealth and public health for present and future generations. And so we looked at the state budget and what the governor had proposed to the legislature. And, um, and uh, they said uh, the, every single one of the goals that the governor had laid out was economic development, including education. So the education goal was uh, to increase uh, students' capacity to join the, you know, the, the economy, to be good workers in, in the economy. Hmm. And every single goal had an econom- was around economics. And do you know we have the most polluted water in the Union, in, in, in the United States, and there wasn't a single goal around cleaning up the water, not one goal. Mm-hmm. And we keep cutting the budget for the Department of Natural Resources, which is you know, charged with the water. And 
we gave tax credits to Apple, the corporation, when it came into Iowa, of about $50 million, even though we slashed the budgets of, say, the public universities um, that were investigating uh, uh, sustainable agriculture and other things like that. And um, so we wrote up an analysis of the budget, and it turns out that nobody looks at the budget as a whole. Um, you know, what is the theory of the budget? The budget is how we carry out our work together. And uh, it was revelatory to us um, to look at how we uh, spend money and how it, it carries out uh, a vision of what government is or is not. So um, it seems to me that we um, need to come up with a, uh, a robust theory of government that's compelling and um, has the, the uh, you know, that actually drives things like public health. Mm. So I was just, just reading uh, a review of Naomi, well, Naomi Klein's work, and she says that what we need is a government that closes deep inequalities, strengthens and transforms the public sphere, generates plentiful, dignified work, and radically reigns in corporate power. Now, what would do that? And we have, you know, just as you, you know, we've, we've debated capitalism or socialism, but we haven't stepped back and thought about what's government for and then established right relationships with, say, corporations. Thought about what the relationship of corporations mm. to government should be. Well, I guess both, both capitalism and socialism are arguing about how you split up what you're trying to build to be as big as possible. Like they kind of share like every it's so weird that like like the un, the unspoken assumption is, as you say, like it's all GDP. Everything, every system is being measured against how rich can we get when we just yeah. look at look at everything all together and then the capitalists say, well, whoever created it should keep it. And the socialists say we should share it more equally. But but I mean, neither theory of of government takes into account otters or elms or rivers. Exactly. Exactly. Janine Benyus says that we have a parliament of millions and uh, only one currently has a voice, mm -hmm. and that's, that's humans. And, you know, Bruno Latour, uh, the French philosopher, said uh, um, that things like rivers are actors. So even if you don't want to consider them as animate beings, they are actors. The Missouri River is an actor in our public sphere. And not to give that river a voice seems to me to be a big mistake. Um, and I, I, I'm interested in how to give that larger parliament full voice um, in in the affairs of the world. Right. Well, yeah, what's coming to me, it's kind of it's a really weird um, model. But uh, Paul O'Neill, who is, you know, a capitalist to the core, he was the secretary of uh, of of, um, of something <laughs> so, some you know, um, the, the Treasury or commerce or something like that. And he was he was brought in after that to try to turn around the company Alcoa and which which had been, you know, suffering and there and he, and everyone expected him to come in and like do the usual 
um, corporate turnaround, which is to slash costs, fire people, move factories overseas. And instead, he came in and said, all we're going to talk about in Alcoa is safety. I want to I want to be the safest company in America and I want no more accidents. And so everything and people were shaking their heads. People, you know, the financial analysts got up from this first press conference and told everybody to sell Alcoa. The, the CEO was nuts. And it turns out that by fixing safety and focusing on safety, he turned the company around and they became incredibly profitable. So it's, it's almost like you know, this, the focus on profitability is hamstrings itself. Whereas if you focused on, let's say, we want the best maternal health in the world, if you just focused on that, like probably everything else would get better. Yeah, yeah. So are there are there indicators like that that would that that if we measured and made our goal um, would change things around? Um, so a couple of countries now, uh, New Zealand for one, has decided to make well-being their goal and the focus of their budget. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're they're actually looking at things like domestic violence. Um, <coughs> excuse me, but um, uh, there are things that we could do that would be environmentally related that may would probably clean up our agriculture. That would probably um, you know, change how we thought about pipelines and mining. So we're looking at how to put that all together. Um, new language. Why are we stuck with capitalism and socialism as the only two ways of thinking about the relationship of government to the economy? Huh. Yeah, it seems like though, it seems like we, we've been uh, brainwashed into thinking that it's a you know it's a binary world. Like, well, there's there's male and female. There's capitalism and communism, and we're we're, we're trained from birth to not see that there are those are two little nodes on a pretty infinite spectrum. Yes, that's right. We're looking for all that kind of creativity that we can get um, in in redefining um, the the role of government. So if any of your listeners have uh, thoughts on this, love to hear them. Mm. Well, yeah, I would love to. uh... To invite this 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 conversation to continue in, in comments and, and other places, um, I want to I want to get to the language that you use because that's that's what I felt was like eroded my found my foundations of my the assumptions that I, that I was caught in. So for like when you talk about precautionary principle, you talk about uh, reversing the burden of proof. For 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 one thing, you talk about where, like just just where is the burden of proof crazy right now in our world? Um, so, if you want to put a noxious uh, refinery in a a, a community, um, they're going to do the risk assessment and they're going to say, well, you're only going to have this many. Uh, asthmas or cardiovascular diseases or whatever, and that's accept- an acceptable risk. So you consider it in isolation from all of the other things that are in that community, the f- plating facility, the other refinery, uh, you know, the, the toxic waste dump. You consider it in isolation, and you consider the risk that it adds um, acceptable. And uh, the public has the burden, the responsibility to demonstrate that it is not acceptable. They don't have the science. They don't have the information because the company can keep it uh, to themselves as either a trade secret or 
uh, in the case of toxic chemicals, they're not always expected to test them. A lot of chemicals have been grandfathered in. So the public is at a disadvantage. They don't have the information. The company is not required to either test or disclose. And then uh, they get the benefit of the doubt. The baby in utero does not get the benefit of the doubt. So reversing the burden of proof means several things. One, it means that baby gets the benefit of the doubt, of scientific uncertainty. Um, so there are ways that communities have um, uh, implemented that idea. California EPA has adopted uh, reversing the burden of proof for environmental justice communities. So a company has to uh, demonstrate that they are not going to add to the burden, the toxic burden that a community already has if they are going to build whatever their facility is. Um, another dimension of it is that the polluter has to pay. Um, there are ways of implementing that as well. So if you um, are going to build a mine um, you, uh, under m mining law, you have to put up a bond to uh, uh, pay for the reclamation of that. Now, there are a lot of problems with that, and uh, I, some of your listeners who may know mining law know that it's not worked well. But it can work well if you, if you post a bond that is irrevocable and not company uh, stock, for instance. And in that way, if the mine is not reclaimed, or you could do that with uh, a facility like pipeline, um, that if they, it leaks, um, that the polluter is required to pay. So I was uh, in, deeply involved in the Dakota Access Pipeline, which your uh, listeners may remember for the uh, Standing Rock uh, resistance and the water protectors that ga gathered there. I was a lawyer uh, at Standing Rock and then also in Iowa, um, uh, for uh, helping the coalition and uh, resist uh, the takeover of, of Dakota Access in our state. Um, so um, Iowa, because we made the case that future generations were going to have to pay for any spill, and present generations were the ones that got the benefit of this, the state uh, required an irrevocable parental guarantee to pay in case of a spill, and $25 million of insurance. None of the other uh, three states required anything like that from Dakota Access. So because we argue that the polluter needs to pay, not the public, we got those guarantees in. That's part of reversing the burden of proof. Mm. And, and then if you, I mean, apply that to like ordinary human relations, it just seems like common sense. Like if someone's going to do something that might mess up, you know, if I, if I hire someone to dig a septic field for me or to put a roof on or or anything that has the potential for doing harm to my property. Of course, I'm, want, I'm going to want them to be bonded and insured in a way that, that protects me in in case of disaster. Exactly, exactly. And um, we just have let big corporations get away with going, oh, no, how could you possibly say we're, we're you know, all of our, you know, our, and it's all PR. Um, and the promises that they make of jobs, they don't have to fulfill. So they make these promises. They take out ads. Energy transfer partners, the um, 
the parent corporation for Dakota Access. I understand, uh, I just read this morning, ran an ad in one of the big football games um, this past weekend about how great pipelines were and how, you know, what would this country be without pipelines? My God, the um, amount of money that they can put into advertising and, uh, you know, it almost rivals the Russian bots and trolls on, on uh, Facebook. Right. Well, but um, it's I mean, it's not just advertising, though. It's, it's a dependency. Like my business partner, Josh, is from South Louisiana and it's, you know, it's Trump country. It's oil country. Like people are making a good living in these in economic terms for given the amount of education they have by you know working for this oil industry like in meanwhile they they they're sitting there watching their land disappear they're watching the uh, the islands where they used to go fishing with their dads no longer exist and yet the the they there's a tremendous fear of loss if these industries are damaged and the industries don't have to spend a lot of money on advertising because that they're they're predisposed to ally themselves with these industries that are killing them and their families and destroying their their land. How how can we how can we sever that that fear link? It is a multifaceted campaign. It's multifaceted. Um, I think that the Naomi Klein mention of dignified work is really important. And, you know, you can track the uh, line of how we got into this oil and gas especially fracking for both oil and gas, um, back to uh, something as, that seems uh, you know, distant, and that is uh, the science and research agenda. So we used to have huge nuclear power, uh, nu nuclear engineering departments in our universities. But after Three Mile Island and Chernobyl, all of those uh, uh, nuclear engineering departments closed at the public universities, and those uh, fabulous engineering minds went into retrofitting oil and gas. Hmm. Um, so we didn't uh, create solar uh, or wind energy uh, departments in those universities or something else, something you know, that we can't even imagine right now because it wasn't done. Um, and they went into retrofitting oil and gas. So they uh, figured out how to dig in the uh, uh, drill in the very deep ocean, which is how we got the... Uh, you know, some of the huge spills in the ocean. Um, and they figured out how to uh, frack deeper and horizontally. And uh, so instead of investing in a research agenda, a public interest research agenda, we uh, allowed uh, you know, the, the kind of engineering to just go on as, as it is. And all of our research has essentially been privatized under the, uh, under the structure of funding um, and the laws for transferring intellectual property rights generated through publicly funded research to private corporations. We don't have a public interest research agenda that would look at meaningful energy uh, approaches. Um, so we're not driving a, a research agenda in the public interest that's 10 years out um, that would have given jobs to provided jobs for people in Louisiana, for instance, that were uh, uh, clean, that promoted public health, the well-being of the land. So everything that they're doing now is polluting the water and taking away jobs in the fishing industry. What's that about? 
That's insane. Um, so we don't connect the dots very well, um, and uh, and we we leave we leave a lot of uh, this up to the short term thinking of both politicians, which is very short term, and uh, you know to corporations which have quarterly reports to generate. We have to start thinking longer term. Right. So one one of the things that I, I hear from my friends in technology, Silicon Valley types is that like, you know, don't worry, the market will save us. Like if there's if there's a problem, that's what the market's really good at. And so, you know, and the technologies are, are growing. We're going to solve climate change. We're going to solve pollution. We're going to put tubes in the sky. We're going to sequester carbon in, in plants, not not real plants, but, you know, <laughs> factories. Um, but it sounds like what you're saying is that give, given the same structure of incentives and disincentives, that's that's really a false hope. It is. Um, and there there are two errors in thinking. One is um, I think you've appropriately described the incentives and disincentives. Um, but there's also the uh, false hope on, in technology that um, I uh, uh, living in Iowa with no clean air, no clean water, with the antibiotic resistance um, that's been fostered by the gigantic confined animal feeding operations, you know, housing thousands and thousands of pigs, uh, there's no way to live with dirty air, dirty water, and antibiotic resistance. The, the diseases that are now prevalent, the kind of uh, I, how, how do you reverse this? If this is going to take uh, ecological solutions. And there isn't a lot of money in, in ecological solutions. That's why we need to change even the incentives around government. Um, the gov government um, uh, has the capacity to set those longer-term goals to fund actions like ecological restoration. Um, but putting all of our hope in technology, uh, because it benefits the economy, is a false hope and uh, going to get us into further trouble. Most technology is going to require uh, two things. One is energy, uh, and the other is uh, things that have been extracted from the earth. So, um, you know, Alcoa still requires a lot of, of material uh, extracted from mines to make aluminum, uh, it, it, you know, technology requires those two things, energy and uh, uh, raw materials. Mm. So some some few, some in, in a better world, Paul O'Neill would say we're going to uh, avoid injury, not just to the humans who work here, but to all beings, all beings. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, so you began your TEDx talk by by speaking of different ways of talk of, of of seeing history. And you mentioned a way that wasn't chronological. And as you you answered my, my first question by by saying that there's different ways to tell a story. Why did you begin your TEDx talk in, in Maui by talking about non chronological ways and place based ways of, of telling the story of history? I told how the White Mountain Apache think about history. And the reason I started with the White Mountain Apache is that um, I began my career as an archaeologist 
uh, in the desert southwest. I have a graduate degree in archaeology and anthropology, and um, I worked for uh, a large uh, archaeological project in Colorado. And I had done my graduate, some of my uh, field training uh, with the White Mountain Apache on uh, on their reservation. And um, what the the reason I started with that was because I felt like I had apprenticed to both the Puebloans, who um, I know quite well. That was the, the it's their ancestors that um, I had studied closely. I uh, I know the stone tools and ritual um, archaeology, the the great kivas, the things that are in the great kivas, uh, how they organized their ceremonial life. Um, and I know the White Mountain Apache both personally because some of the, my best friends are uh, White Mountain Apache, but also because I, I was apprenticed to their uh, way of living uh, with the earth. And I was, I've been asking what a morally mature culture looks like. And a morally mature culture, it seems to me, has two dimensions. One is how we treat each other as humans, and the other is how do we treat the earth. And um, that, that, that ethical relationship between uh, you know, uh, each other, humans, and with each other, the earth, uh, seemed to me to be um, that, that both the Pueblos and the White Mountain Apache had gotten it right. You could measure it with the Pueblos because they've been there for thousands of years in the same place. And I wanted to know how you do that. How do you do that without destroying your home? And with the White Mountain Apache, the, the clarity with which they live in place and the, the, the elegance. And so the White Mountain Apache tell history simply by um, naming the place. So the place names themselves carry entire stories. And to some extent, the environmental movement has done that as well. I named a couple of places in, this, uh, in our conversation today. I mentioned Chernobyl and Three Mile Island. And most of your listeners will know those two places. I could have said Fukushima. Uh, for some of your listeners, I could have said Love Canal. Uh, mm. I could say Yosemite. Uh, and a lot of us will, would know, you know Yosemite as a national park with a, an incredible rock named El Capitan. Um, so we can do some of that now. It doesn't carry the ethical dimensions that the White Mountain and Apache imbue their landscape with. Um, that the, when you name that place, you also tell a story about how we should live, how we should behave. Well, it's um, more, that, that's that's result, reserved for battle sites, right? Like the Alamo or Iwo Jima. Like there's 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 ethical and moral weight placed on those on Gettysburg certainly but yes. but not yet not yet on uh, on environmental battles my great great grandmother i don't know how many greats back um uh was a mennonite brethren woman uh at gettysburg lived on cemetery hill cemetery hill used to be called raffensburger hill hmm. and i have the brass bucket that she used to cook for people um at that battle she took the bucket down to the road, built a fire, and served soup to every single person who came by and was hungry. And as a central story for me, Gettysburg uh, remains. I went back uh, to Gettysburg and to Raffensperger Hill, uh, now called Cemetery Hill, uh, two years ago. 
to visit that place, which is both ancestral um, and a conundrum. Who do you feed? Who do you invite to the table? How do you think about war? Uh, she was a Mennonite brethren. She was a pacifist. And um, so I carry her story with me. Um, and so when you say Gettysburg, to me, uh, Gettysburg carries an enormous amount of power. Mm. Wow. So what, what, one of the, the phrases that you used in the, in the TEDx talk was, how do we act like beloved ancestors? And I, I love this so much is one of one of the tricks we use to get people to like eat healthy, to eat their vegetables instead of junk food is to imagine their future self. So like, you know, and there's there's some scientific studies that if you take your face and you age it in one of these uh, smartphone apps and you think about, oh, one day I'm going to be 60, one day I'm going to be 80, that you might behave, you, know, you might behave better today. You'll eat better. You'll save more money. You'll do all, all the virtuous things. And I love this. To me, it's the same sort of thing. Like if I think about myself as an ancestor, as someone who's long gone and my great great grandchildren are going to think of me either like, why didn't you do something or thank you or, you know, gosh, the, the guts it took to give up everything you knew to create this world for us. Like I'm starting to tear, but it, it, it just makes every, it, like it puts all of my decisions into a much bigger and more powerful and more beautiful frame. It is one of the things I ask myself regularly. Oh, when I when I was younger, um, I wanted to be a well-known environmentalist. I wanted to, you know, I, I wanted that power, that recognition that has completely changed for me. Mm. Um, I now want to make the difference where I can actually see the compass has has shifted. And there are, you know, I, I'm going to work on the environmental things and uh, my work on the precautionary principle now stands without my name. Um, mm -hmm. You know, people know the precautionary principle, don't know that um, I convened the wing spread statement, uh, the wing spread conference that issued the statement that, you know, put it on the map in the United States. People no longer know that. And I think that that's, makes it more like folk music than, say, a piece by, you know, <laughs> Beethoven. And I, I aspire in some ways to that, you know, that collective move, um, uh, a, a, a subnote, a sub, uh, a footnote to that. Michael Pollan, I called Michael Pollan and said, hi, you want to write about my idea called the precautionary principle for the New York Times magazine section? He said, yes, and he did. He did not include my name in it and uh, used all the words that I'd used and uh, wrote a brilliant piece on the precautionary principle. And it was a genius move to leave me out of it because what they would have said is, well, she's just a lawyer. She's not a, a biochemist. She's not an epidemiologist. She, uh, she's just a lawyer. She's a girl. She's what, whatever they would have said to dismiss the idea. And so it became folk music in that way. But as much as... Uh, the environmental work, um, the social stressors uh, are the real determinants of health. Um, so racism, poverty, all of those things that um, are societally driven in many ways um, are uh, the real determinants of health, and uh, uh, are, are the main de determinants of health. They're not the only ones, but we know that if someone has a bad diet and is exposed to lead, um, and is in, in an impoverished 
uh, home that the, magnifies the effects of lead. If you are not in a poor family and you have a good diet, lead is not as big a factor in, uh, in your cognitive capacity. And um, so I'm as interested in those small things that I can do in my neighborhood and my community that guarantee good and clean food for my neighbor. My, my personal motto has been a well-fed neighbor is the best defense against hard times. And uh, I think that uh, my neighbor who can afford clean food and good food is the best defense against hard times. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to make uh, the defense against hard times for the great-grandchildren. And in that way, if my neighbor is able to protect his or her child, their great-grandchildren will also be protected. And that's what I aim to do. Mm. So I want to end with a couple, with a couple of... Uh maybe difficult questions. Um, one, and, I, and I don't want to get it necessarily into the politics, but we've, we were in the season of, uh, of presidential politics and campaigns, and, and there, you know, it was a very, very diverse, in some ways, democratic field. And I'm wondering if you heard any visions of politics, of government, of democracy from anyone that you felt were... Uh, we're in line with precautionary principle and with with becoming a beloved ancestor as opposed to business as usual. Um, I see uh, people at least facing in that direction, but I have not heard. And I think that that's why we get to do the work, um, since I haven't heard that. I, the closest I've heard in the past was Barack Obama's first inaugural speech. Um, I'd had the, uh, the good fortune of being one of his lawyers early in his uh, first campaign. And because and I knew all the Chicago environmentalists, I'd uh, uh, gone to graduate school and law school in, in Chicago and had worked for the Sierra Club in Chicago. I knew all those people. And so we had a chance to have conversations with pretty high-level people in his campaign. But I think that the, uh, the lock hold that the free market, free enterprise, capitalism, private property have on the intellect, make it invisible to both Republicans and Democrats. And so we have not challenged in any articulate, uh, clear, compelling way um, that, you know, a different vision of government. I think that that's our task. So that's before us, and um, uh, it's, I'm, I'm happy to take it on with uh, many other, other people. And we're putting together uh, a larger group to do that um, at, at the request and invitation of uh, a man who's been, who has the capacity to uh, help uh, guide this, who knows everybody. Um, so, so this is work that's ahead. Uh, and it's it's um, if we only respond to the emergency, we won't do the long-term thinking. And I think it, that has been um, the responsibility that has been uh, given to a circle that I'm part of. Mm, love it. Um, so my second question, and I don't want it to come off as facile because I think it can be, which is you know the the the, the way I would phrase it if I were being thoughtless and sloppy is: Do you have any hope? Or what gives you hope 
Um, but I know you, you quoted um, Václav Havel as essentially saying that hope isn't a conviction that things are going to turn out right, but that things are important and that the work we're doing is important. But at the same time, I just listened to um, Catherine Ingram's Facing Extinction. And, you know, she's basically saying it's time to stop trying to solve the problem and just, you know, face like face the end with courage. And I'm wondering, like, both for yourself and for people who are listening to this, because we, you know, we see the bad news every day, like where, if, if not hope, where are there things we can do that might make a uh, difference? I, I did quote Václav Havel um, in that and said, hope is the deep orientation of the soul. And I, uh, I think that, the, that as a personal matter, uh, I take comfort in the stars and that we are not able to change those. Trump has no jurisdiction over the stars. <laughs> and I go out and look at them. And I go and I, I uh, look at the beauty of the sky um, I, I, as, as comfort. I, uh, I work with people I love. And when I know that we're in this together, then I know that, that we have a better shot. I also believe in surprise and the emergent, and, and emergent events. And I work for that surprise. I work for uh, what I called in the TEDx talk, grace, a secular grace that uh, is the surprise gift that arises out of this goodness. Um, I have the remarkable good fortune to work with a number of indigenous people that I adore. And um, I have had the opportunity to work with a woman named Faith Spotted Eagle, who is the only, uh, the first indigenous person to receive an electoral college vote for president. I think it was a Washington state elector that uh, voted for her in 2016. And I'm working with her um, to do things like stop sex trafficking along pipeline routes, the Keystone Excel pipeline route. And there's always the conundrum about where evil comes from. Um, and I work for justice. One of the things that I believe is that justice is woven into the fabric of the universe itself, that it is an immutable feature of it. And I work for justice. So I think that more I believe in justice than I believe in with that, uh, that deep um, layer of grace um, so that, there, that I expect surprises. And I think surprises come more out of love and affection, both my love and affection for the earth as well as uh, for my comrades, my colleagues in um, this, this beautiful and terrible work. Mm. Yeah, I just want to kind of reflect back to you that, you know, and you, know, you have a private Facebook account, a personal one, and we're Facebook friends. So I, I get a glimpse into your heart on a, on a regular basis. And, it, and the way I was thinking about what you write, where you'll, you'll talk about how sad you are about something, how um, how something is hurting your heart, that it's just a, this constant mixture, like a roller coaster of grace and grief, and that the two feel like mirror images of each other that you're 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 bringing a, 
uh, a deep humanity, uh, a vulnerability, a woundedness, a love to this work at the same time as, you know, you're rolling up your sleeves and, and, and digging into statutes annotated and, and uh, municipal codes? Well, I'm aware of two things. One is uh, that I have lived a life uh, that, that has been blessed by privilege. Um, you know, my dad was a doctor. I'm white. Um, I owe reparations to the world hmm. um, for what my ancestors and I have benefited from without, uh, outside of justice. And so I owe this. I owe it. And I'm happy, happy to pay it back. Um, I think that that's justice. The other thing is I'm middle-aged, um, and what middle-aged women should have learned or p- adults learned is uh, you just uh, – I, I think about the center cannot hold that, that incredible poem, um, you know, the widening gyre, the center cannot hold. And I think, nope, tough shit. The center better hold and I better <laughs> be right there and keep holding it as best as I can. And so that's what I do. I try to hold the center and uh, meet the the need uh, that if I can prevent any suffering, uh, I have an obligation to do that. I'm stepping up to do that. And uh, sometimes I need a time out and I listen to music. I look at the night sky. I uh, revel in friendship and go on. You just go on. Mm. So that's an incredibly serendipitous segue to what has become my final question in these interviews, because it's, so, it's been so much fun to ask. It's about music. And it's, is, is there some music, a band, a performer, um, something that, that, that means a lot to you and other people might not know about? Um, I uh, have written about another tribe that I'm close to that... Um, they view the law as sung, that the law itself, which is based in the natural world, the earth itself, song, is the law. And so music, uh, and the reason is music can't lie. The words can lie, but but the music itself cannot lie. Mm -hmm. And I uh, spend the month of December um, listening to music and reading about that music so that I can understand the translation of that ineffable quality into the written word, because that's what I'm trying to do. These ineffable ideas of justice or what, how we should work and live together uh, with government or uh, whatever it is, that it's more like music than it is anything else. And that if I can translate those ideas into uh, those words that our culture recognizes law or justice. That's what I try to do. So music is how I think. It's, uh, it structures a, an enormous amount of my world. Um, I'm, I'm taking piano lessons uh, and have been now for 11 months because I want to live out um, uh, my life as the true song of the earth. And uh, I'm, uh, there's so much music that uh, on any given day I would describe as, um, as uh, 
you know, the voice of the day. But mm-hmm. today I listened to a uh, um, piece by a woman named Sarah Thompson, T-H-O-M-S-E-N, and I posted it on Facebook to uh, a page that I, I created called Rewilding Iowa, um, which is the River Dream. And she's asking the river to give uh, the dream. She's asking the prairie to give us the dream. And I think it is out of those dreams, the night dreams, the song of the river itself Hmm. will give us a dream about how to uh, uh, live our life together, the river and us. Mm, Well, that's that's certainly a, a broadening of A Christmas Carol. Right, where, where we get ter- we get terrorized in our dreams by uh, by another, you know, a human um, to to inc- to include the the spirits of the natural world as our guides. Oh yes, yes. Last night I dreamed um, I was given a rock. Um, I don't know by who, and I opened the rock and it was uh, had this glowing light in it. And I decided to take that light as a gift somebody gave me. Hmm. Well, Carolyn Raffensberger, I'm I'm so touched by the the infusion, the the transmission that you've given me, not just of the details and the facts of the struggle, but of the the way of being that um that's so that's so inspiring. And I think I think ultimately is is stronger in our hearts than the the you know economics 101 that we've been taught. So I really want to honor and appreciate the work you have done and continue to do and really express my my overflowing gratitude for you taking the time to share it with us today. It was a delight. And thank you for um, opening the door for these ideas again, and I, I will get to live in a, a slightly different place of comfort um, because I had to say them out loud. I might as well live them out loud now today, <laughs> rather than somewhere in the back of my mind. <laughs> All right, glad to help. Well, th- thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Well, that was a pretty important conversation. I hope you'll agree with me and uh, I'd love if you could spread the word on this one. Really, like we're on this planet, we're watching it hurtle into environmental oblivion. And here's a person who's saying there's stuff we can do. There are levers to push policy levers that can actually shift things dramatically if we change the way we think and if we change the the legal structures under which we think we think that that underlie our assumptions and our thoughts. So one way to do that is to just send it to people. If you could share this with one other person um, that if everyone who listens to this does that, that would, uh, you know, double the, the listeners to this particular episode. You can, of course, share it on social media. You can write a review for Apple Podcast or Stitcher or Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. If you'd like to uh, go the extra mile and become a supporter of the show, you can do that at plantyourself.com. Just on the right sidebar, look for the Patreon button or go to Patreon and just type in plant yourself and I should come up and the podcast should come up right there. If you would like the show notes for this episode with links to a bunch of the stuff we talked about, you can find that at plantyourself.com slash three six, six. Got some great 
uh, conversations coming up for you, including Aaron Spitz, who is the urologist who stole the show in the Game Changers. Uh, conversation coming up soon. Actually, I'll be recording, I think, tomorrow or the day after with Todd Herman, who's the author of The Alter Ego Effect. I'll be sharing a conversation with uh, best-selling author Brad Stolberg about his recent book, The Passion Paradox, and oh, so many more fun conversations in the can and on the calendar. In running news, managed a respectable 12 miles on Saturday, average a nine minute, 12 second pace. So that felt pretty good. And I was sore and my hips got tight at the end, but not as tight as they've gotten in the past. So hopefully that's a good sign. In garden news, we are looking at herb catalogs, thinking we're going to go herb heavy this year and maybe some fewer tomatoes and zucchini and, and things that love to get eaten in our North Carolina garden. So appreciations and gratitudes and felicitations and thanks. First of all, of course, Will Ridenour for his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can hear it now. Strains swelling under my voice. Check out willridenour.com for more. Boy, did you see that article about the Kora player um, from, from Africa? I can't remember what country, maybe Nigeria, whose Kora, this, this gorgeous instrument, was sort of taken apart by uh, U.S. I don't know if it was just, you know TSA or Customs or somebody, but it was just just tragic. And I was thinking about that because Will Ridenour plays the Kora, and that's the instrument that you can hear um, in the intro and outro music for Plant Yourself. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Here we go. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Lisa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Volkanovsky, David Bizek, Miss Sears, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leia Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrews, Josina, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rumpus Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selvig, Hare Adams, Tom Franzek, Jeanette Bedden, Gil Assert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizo, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Martha Bergner, Susan Ahmad, Mala Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R., Susan Laberty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Dean Norton, Bonnie Lynch, The Plant Happy Organ, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davis, Marion Blum, Teresa Coble, Julian Watkins, Greer O'Connor, Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzan, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Charlie Sherry Orlikoski, Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen Joe Crabtree. Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, and Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divid, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Canelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan McCorney, Stephen Leenan, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Karts, Deanne Bishop, Bill Burrell, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trish Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarie Hagen. Tracy Gullage, Laura Heaton, Meg for Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sal Sally Robertson, Parham Ganchi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie, Josie Dempsey, and Karen Schmidt for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for today. Got another episode of the Fertil Plant Yourself Fertilizer coming up on Friday. Um, I'll talk to you again then. And as always, be well, my friends.
So if you appreciate the Plant Yourself podcast and would like to help support the mission of the show, there's a few easy ways to do it. One is to just go to wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. Let other people know about it. Give us some stars. Give us some love. And that really helps us be found by more people. Something else, of course, you can do is let someone know about this podcast, someone uh, who you think would benefit. Send them maybe a couple of episodes that you think would uh, pique their interest or just uh, ask them to subscribe in general. And third, you can join arms and become a patron, a financial supporter of this show. You may have noticed that there's no advertising in the show and it's free for everyone and it's supported, paid for by those who can afford it. So if you would like to make a one time contribution or an ongoing monthly pledge, you can do so at plantyourself.com slash gift. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Heatherly, Mary Jean Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barons, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Vizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrews, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Kara Adams, Tom Fronsek, Jeanette Benham, Gail Assert, David Donahue, Blair Cyborg, Toronto Vizo, Gio and Carol Argitati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Thunderbrook, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck. The equally mysterious Tracy Z of Eva L, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, and Martha Bergner, Susan Amon, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R, Susan Laverty, the Panda, Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plant, Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Shannon Hirsch, Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzumak, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis. Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divitt, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darmy Kelly, Laurie Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McEntee, Dan McCorney, Stephen Lehman. Petty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Cartson, Deanne Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bashford, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gullich, Laura Heaton, Meg for Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, Diana, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parham Ganchi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt. Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidoroska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught, Avedible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, and Danielle Roberts for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for today. As always, be well, my friends.